We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. Today, we're joined by Lindsay Burke. She is the director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Lindsay, thanks so much for taking the time to chat. Yeah, thanks for having me, Emily. So you guys are very busy over at Heritage when it comes to education policy. Um, and, and just as somebody who sort of like goes around, um, pops into conservative movement meetings here and there, I have been really impressed with Heritage lately um, and particularly the focus on uh, education policy and, you know, really what I think is an awareness um, of the gravity of the situation and a, a good sense of what needs to be done to fix it. So if you could start just by, you've, you've been at the Heritage Foundation for a while um, and, you know, you've been around the conservative movement for a while. Do you sense similarly that there's there's kind of a, a momentum um, that's picked up in, you know, over, at least over the last year, if not uh, the last few years? Yeah, I, I do. And, and thanks for that. Uh, definitely appreciate it. I think we have just a, a really dynamite team uh, right now working on education policy and with Heritage's new president, Dr. Roberts. He has such a, a keen interest and background in education. And, you know, I, I think his vision for being on, on offense on every issue, but in particular right now, education is, is just really, really important. And we have really had no better opportunity to advance a positive agenda for education uh, than at this moment right now. And that's the function of a lot of different things that transpired over the past, as you pointed out, year or so. But really two years, I think, with COVID, you know, everybody saw schools closed down, parents saw their children's school doors closed. And when the school doors closed, families opened up their laptops and really got a uh, front row uh, view into what their children's schools were teaching. And they saw things that did not sit well with them, whether it was critical race theory or radical gender uh, ideology being advanced in elementary schools across the country, it was very disconcerting to a lot of families. And not only did they see that, but I think at that moment, they also realized, unfortunately, how little leverage they had to do anything about it, because I would argue the lack of school choice broadly across the country, but also just this lack of transparency in school districts around content. And, you know, families saw that firsthand and they, they did what we would expect so many American families to do. They banded together. They uh, really made their voices heard at the local level. They went to those school board meetings uh, and demanded uh, more transparency around that content. And so that's all been great. We're starting to see that unfold more and more that families are getting a better look into what their children's schools are teaching. We're seeing more states embrace private school choice at the K-12 level. I mean, West Virginia now has a near universal education savings account program in place, uh, which students will be able to begin benefiting from this fall. That's just monumental progress uh, in, in terms of education choice. So things are, are moving, I think, in a positive direction in general. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's, as you point out, I think a function of the fact that there was a lot that parents were dissatisfied with over the course of the, the past few years uh, that COVID really enabled them to see. And I want to dive into um, student loans because that's what we were planning to talk about. <laughs> but uh, Lindsay, while well, I have you here, um, I want to ask just sort of 
we, we haven't had a podcast on this in a while, um, just for the, the basic argument on behalf of school choice in the context of these objectionable curriculums. So like people sort of get the argument for school choice, especially in the context of that it's often talked about on the right it, of sort of failing um, inner city schools that are, are hurting kids and sort of sapping them of their potential um, in, in myriad ways. But in the context of parents sort of complaints about these objectionable curricula around the country, which are, you know, flat out racist in so many different uh, ways. How does school choice solve that problem? Fundamentally, school choice is about values alignment. It is about enabling families to take their dollars. We have to remember these are their taxpayer dollars and to have those dollars follow their children to schools that align with their values, that fit their family's values, their hopes, their aspirations for their children. That is the crux of what education choice is about, um, making sure that children, that families can select into those learning environments that, that do reflect um, their vision for a good life and, and their values generally. Now, there are all of these positive additional effects. And I think, quite frankly, um, those on the right, we've, we've been good about talking about those other impacts for years, right? We've always made the economic argument that school choice uh, gets you a better bang for your buck. And that is definitely the case. If you look across the country in education choice programs, education savings accounts, vouchers, tax credit scholarships, uh, those are providing a portion, but not all, of the money that would have been spent on a child in a public school to the family to then use. And for a fraction of what the public schools are spending, families are able to get a better education that fits their values and is safe. Right? Safety is such an important issue for families as it should be. Um, so they're really good at making that, that economic argument uh, for years as a, as a positive benefit. Uh, and something else that, that you mentioned there, which is um, the sort of uh, justice argument, right, for children who have been poorly served by the traditional assignment by zip code public school system, uh, lower income children in particular, uh, that this is imperative for them to actually uh, be able to attend schools that are safe and effective. But I think what is new somewhat is that uh, choice, and particularly among conservatives, um, explaining to families that, you know, for everything that they're seeing transpire in their public schools and their right to be mad about so much of what they're seeing, that choice is a really powerful tool that they need to have at their disposal and they don't have enough of. And so if you marry that right now with what we're seeing in the states, there's a big push for transparency things like parents' bills of rights. You know, you'll often hear that a parent, and this is correct, a parent shouldn't have to FOIA uh, their <laughs> local school to find out what they're teaching. They shouldn't have to travel all the way to the district headquarters to get a glimpse at the textbooks that are being used. Um, they should have immediate transparency. They should be able to click on the school's website and see the syllabus that their kids' schools uh, are using, the syllabi. Uh, that's really important. You've got to have that transparency but transparency has to have teeth and school choice is the teeth that makes that transparency so powerful as well. So again, I just, I think we're at a really uh, important moment right now where, um, you know, all the pushback that parents are, are um, participating in against this radical content, I think is also hastening the need uh, for, for education choice in the states. And, and we're seeing states move in the right direction on that. 
Yeah, that's so interesting. And one more question on that before we get to uh, student loans, uh, which is I've seen a localist argument. I haven't seen a lot of it, but the sort of hyperlocalist um, new right argument that school choice actually is is um, giving up on particular communities and localities and not investing. Um, so, ra- so rather than sort of taking your resources elsewhere, we should be hyper focused on improving our immediate communities, investing in local communities um, and making those schools better better. Now, I think that is a terrible argument. <laughs> what, what would your response to it be as somebody who's actually an expert here? Well, you know, it's it's always a matter of how much more investment, right? I mean, we've seen per pupil spending uh, nearly triple in real terms since the 1970s. We have spent just a tremendous amount of money on public institutions. You look at the, you know, nearly $200 billion in additional spending that public schools got uh, in the face of COVID. I mean, it is not for a lack of resources or investment or spending that district schools aren't providing what families need. Uh, it's a lack of choice. It's a lack of competition. Um, the fact that public schools are in this enviable position of a near monopoly uh, for them has meant that they're, they don't have to be responsive to families. They don't have to be accountable to them. And so until we fix that misalignment of power and incentives, we're not going to see, no matter how small the district is, uh, those districts being adequately responsive to families. So it all comes back at the end of the day to you know funding children directly, allowing those dollars to follow them to institutions that do meet their needs. And look, if a local school district, a small district, you know, if the community is meeting, if the district's meeting the the needs of the community, there's nothing to worry about, right? I mean, <laughs> families will stick around, right? If if it's a good fit for them and and the district's being responsive, but if it's not meeting the community's needs, if it's not meeting families' needs, they shouldn't be trapped there. They should be able to take, again, their taxpayer dollars to learning options that, that align with their values and their needs. Yeah. And this is actually not a bad segue into the question of student loans, um, because I think the the question of student loans itself gets at something that is just absolutely central to so many of the problems ailing us as a culture and as a country and in the political sense as well. Uh, So there's news on the front of student loan forgiveness. It has been a hard left talking point for a really long time, the sort of thing that you would have seen on the platform of Bernie Sanders. um, But then as uh, you know, we we had one of Bernie Sanders deputy, we had his deputy campaign manager on the show a couple of weeks ago who talked about he's sort of the Barry Goldwater of the left. Um, He really sort of normalized and mainstreamed far left policies and to the point where now Joe Biden, Amtrak Joe, is uh, Mm -hmm. flirting with the idea of basically a a total student loan forgiveness um, in the with the sort of ease that we saw COVID checks go out under the last two administrations, just universal um, forgiveness for student loans. We don't know if that's going to be the final policy, but we do at least know that the administration is thinking very seriously about it. Uh, And so, Lindsay, there's so much to talk about when it comes to uh, student loan forgiveness um, and the problem of the lack of competition when you're subsidizing all these institutions of higher learning um, and they can just keep you know charging more and more and more money and bankrupting more and more uh, Amer- young Americans um, and making it harder for them to buy houses and start families and even buy cars and everything um, on down the line. Let me just start by asking why student loan forgiveness is not even progressive, as progressives uh, will assert uh, insistently. 
Well, it is one of the most regressive policies you can possibly design. Um, if you, there are a lot of ways to think about this issue to slice the data, but Preston Cooper has done a lot of really good work on this, and he found that the top fifth of households hold three dollars in student loans for every one dollar held by the bottom fifth. And so, if you forgive student loans, of course, you're forgiving much more of uh, that uh, upper income debt than you are. Um, uh, the debt that is held by lower income households. So at its core, that's why it's regressive. Um, about a third of all student loan debt is owed by the wealthiest 20% of households and only about 8% by the bottom 20% of households. So again, it's just the way that, that loans are distributed. And that's because largely where we see these high debt balances, high student loan debt balances, it's among those who pursued graduate degrees, but specifically professional degrees. So individuals who went to graduate school to become attorneys and doctors. And of course, those individuals, statistically speaking, are very likely to uh, out earn those individuals who did not pursue professional degrees and are best positioned to repay their student loans on their own. So it's regressive for for a host of reasons, the New York Fed actually just put out a, a study on this, and they found that the more generous student loan forgiveness becomes, the more that it benefits upper income earners. And if you look at the proposals that are floating out there, and, and we don't know yet exactly what President Biden is planning, what amount of debt uh, they're thinking about forgiving uh, with a swipe of a pen, apparently. But uh, if it is $10,000, which is that's a number that's been floating around, forgiveness would cost about $320 billion. I mean, it's just a breathtaking amount of money. Uh, if you go all the way up where Elizabeth Warren wants to be closer to $50,000 per borrower, that would cost $904 billion. So it's just, it's a raw deal for taxpayers, no matter how you slice it. Um, and even right now, right? I mean, we're in this, this uh, time of student loan repayment pause. And the Department of Education has estimated that each month taxpayers are losing $200 billion in repayments and another $5 billion in accrued interest. So again, it's just it's a breathtaking amount of money that we are asking taxpayers to shoulder, two-thirds of whom don't even hold bachelor's degrees. So again, another reason why it's quite regressive in nature. Of course, many of our listeners are parents, so I want to let you guys know, parents, it is time to finally cross off one of the most important things on your to-do list, life insurance. Fabric makes getting a great term life insurance policy for your family quick, easy, and surprisingly affordable. Fabric was built specifically for parents to help you manage your family's financial future like a parenting pro, stress-free. Fabric's new lower prices mean significant savings over other providers with great policies like a million dollars in coverage for less than a dollar a day. Everything's also on your scheduled fabric because it's all online. How convenient is that? Less than 10 minutes to apply and you could be offered coverage instantly with no health exam required. Then just personalize your quote to fit your family's needs and you'll be set with high quality, affordable protection for your family. What a weight off your shoulders. Fabric is fully backed by Vantus Life, one of the most trusted names in life insurance since 1847. So you can feel confident when you're getting a high quality policy that meets your family's needs. With Fabric's online hub, it's quick and easy to track your family finances all in one place. Get fast, affordable life insurance, create a will for your family, set up your kid's college 
savings plan and even establish a rainy day savings fund. Planning for the future has never been easier. There's no risk to apply today either. Fabric has a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel at any time. So protect your family with term life insurance now in just 10 minutes. Apply today at meetfabric.com slash federalist. That's meetfabric.com slash federalist to start protecting your family today. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash federalist. Fabric insurance agency policies issued by Vantus Life, not available in New York and Montana. Price is subject to underwriting and health questions. Yeah, no, that's a really good point. Um, And (laughs) even on that, I guess I'm wondering how likely you think it is that it, it, it sounds like so there are different proposals. So Elizabeth Warren has her proposal. There's proposals even on the state level that uh, differ in sort of the graduated scale of forgiveness. Um, do you think it is a possibility? And this is what worries me. It's, it's like the left is now increasingly gravitating towards universal solutions. I think we're already with the levels of inflation seeing the folly of universal solutions when it came to COVID checks. Um, do you think there is a, any possibility that the if the Biden administration does something on this, it is universal? Or do you see it more likely that they, they land on a graduated sort of scale of forgiveness? Yeah, I think it's more likely. I mean, who knows, right, what they'll do. I think <laughs> it's more likely that they would pursue some sort of targeted, more I guess, modest, I hesitate to even use that word, but more targeted <laughs> uh, amount of student loan forgiveness. And, and they've already, the administration's already been chipping away at different segments of student uh, debt. So they've provided more student loan debt uh, for those who qualify for public sector loan forgiveness, for instance. And so there are these discrete categories that they have been providing loan forgiveness to. Um, So I I think that that's probably the direction they would continue to go, that it would be, you know, uh, means tested and then capped at at some some amount, probably, uh, you know, around 10,000, more than 10, probably less than 20, (laughs) if I had to, if I had to guess. Um, So, you know, but but we'll see ultimately what, what they end up doing. And, you know, again, we're at the 30 month pause right now on student loan repayments, 30 months. I mean, they're, no other segment of society is getting this type of special treatment two and a half years after COVID first hit. So why this particular group? Why this particular type of debt, right? A lot of people have debt for a lot of different aspects of their lives, right? Credit card debt and car debt. And, you know, um, say you're an Uber driver and you took out a car loan to purchase a car, uh, you know, not to mention mortgages, right? So this particular type of debt is getting special treatment long after uh, the the um, you know I think COVID first first really kicked off and and again these are the individuals who statistically speaking were more likely college uh, degree holders more likely to have been able to work from home during COVID um, more likely to um, be able to to land a job in this economy and and yet these are the the individuals being singled out for special government treatment. Mm. Yeah. And so that gets to the, I think, the moral question of it. And I am in just complete alignment and agreement on that. And we could go deeper, but I, I think we would agree on everything about the the fairness and the justice in a policy like that. Um, the left would, of course, counter and say, well, listen, the, the sort of political establishment swindled everyone into paying these really high rates. So in fact, it's just to sort of forgive this illegitimate uh, debt to begin with. But, you know, you're sort of stripping people of their own agency 
agency and decision making powers um, in in order to make that argument. Uh, and so, Lindsay, I want to ask then on the practical question. Um, I've compared this to when uh, the squad, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, um, they refused to vote for the original Build Back Better bill um, without an absolute guarantee that the second one. So like they refused to vote for what was called the BIF, the, the Bipartisan Infrastructure Bill, without a guarantee that the second one would come. Um, but the second, like more progressive sort of Christmas, progressive Christmas list uh, would would come and biden said it would absolutely it would it would it would if student loan is student loans are forgiven uh, it, it strikes me as that like absolutely nothing is going to be done to reduce the costs in the first right. place what do you think about that yeah i mean that's spot on and it will certainly just inflate the costs of college <laughs> there you know a, a lot of people have, have pointed this out right i mean if you are a student and uh, a current student and you see a wave of loan forgiveness, no matter what amount, right? Whether it's 10,000 or just blanket across the board forgiveness, what will happen to, to you moving forward, right? Your expectation as a borrower, if you are entering college again this fall, uh, is that you would also have your student loans forgiven in the future. Why wouldn't that be your expectation? <laughs> so what it's this moral hazard, right? You will try to attend probably the most expensive college you can get into. You'll probably borrow as much as you can possibly borrow because you would rightly assume that because students uh, prior to you had had their loans forgiven, that, that you'll have yours forgiven in the future. And so it does, that's, I think the other thing that the administration hasn't really thought through, right? Forgiveness today, what does that mean for future borrowers? There are just sort of basic policy questions that, that haven't been answered around this issue. And so I, I think, right, I mean, you, you brought up the Progressive Caucus that what this would end up doing is laying the groundwork for progressives to argue that college has to be, quote, free, mm. air quotes, right, free, taxpayer funded, moving forward, because that's the only way then that you wouldn't create this sort of moral hazard issue, right, if you've already forgiven the debt of uh, prior borrowers. So unfortunately, it's just another problem with the policy is that it would really set up um, this argument for making college totally taxpayer funded moving forward. And what's the obviously, again, I think we'd be in alignment on the moral question of a free you know, taxpayer funded education. What is What are the practical problems? How would that affect our system of higher education yeah. well, um, to shift yeah. to that? I mean, the first most practical problem is scarcity. And we can look across the, the pond, right, to, to England. England tried to do free college uh, a couple of decades ago. And so they said, we're not going to charge tuition anymore. And what that ultimately led to was that because there was a finite amount of taxpayer resources available, rationing of seats. And so eventually they reversed course and they started charging tuition fees again. But I, I think that's one thing that you would see is that, you know, because there, there are only so many dollars to go around on this question that uh, we would see uh, slots rationed. Uh, but then, you know, I mean, again, it's just it's this expense. It's this tremendous expense uh, at a time when our national debt is higher than it's ever been. Um, so just one more way in which we're really, I think, throwing fuel on the inflationary fire. 
Right. Right. Um, and the other question um, I have for you is how education costs. This is like an obvious and important question, but I actually don't think a lot of people understand it. Um, and that became clear after uh, Chuck Schumer said President Biden was, was sort of flirting with this idea of loan forgiveness. Um, I don't know that a lot of people fully understand how the subsidies have contributed to the cost, uh, the skyrocketing cost of higher education. And there are studies that sort of get to exactly how right. much they've driven up the cost. But as somebody who studies this really closely, um, how would you describe the effect of the the mass sort of federal subsidies for college education, uh, how, how it has affected the cost and the increase in cost? Well, it's exactly what Secretary Bill Bennett had predicted back in 1987. So in 1987, Ronald Reagan's education secretary, Bill Bennett, uh, wrote an op-ed, I think it was for the New York Times, but it was called Our Greedy Colleges. And he said in that op-ed that the more you throw federal dollars at higher education, the more it will enable them to raise tuition. And I think that hypothesis has proven out. <laughs> it's a truism now. We, we can just look across the country and and look at the data and see. I mean, the cost of college has increased at a rate uh, almost as fast as healthcare costs across the country, uh, four times the rate of inflation since the 1980s. It's just been a cr tremendous increase in cost, and universities are able to do that in large part because of these open-ended federal subsidies. Students can borrow up to the cost of attendance uh, and in many cases to attend college, which can mean anything, right? I mean, your cost of living, transportation, whatever it is, food that you need. Uh, and of course, as a student, right, students are gonna borrow the maximum amount that they can. And universities know that they have this easy access to federal loans, that there's virtually no credit check or limit to the amount that you can borrow or consideration of your future ability to repay those loans. And so, they raised tuition. It has enabled also this facilities arms race, right, where you see universities installing nice climbing walls and lazy rivers and <laughs> every other perk, right, uh, that, that you could possibly imagine. And, uh, you know, and you're right, there are a lot of studies out there that really put a finer point on it. Um, the, the New York Fed had put out a study a couple of years ago that found that for every dollar increase in subsidized student loans, universities increase tuition 63 cents. So they're capturing the additional federal spending that's out there. And so the question is always, well, you know, what do you do about it? Um, you know, if th this vicious cycle that federal student loans creates isn't the way forward, uh, what do you do? And I think, and it may sound counterintuitive, but the best thing to do would be to eliminate these federal student loans altogether but particularly the grad and family, the parent plus loan and the grad plus loan program. Um, those are, I think, some of the biggest drivers uh, that are enabling universities to raise tuition profligately. Um, again, with graduate students, you know, borrowing up to the cost of attendance uh, to attend school. I mean, this can end up being $200,000, right, if you're pursuing a, a professional degree. Um, and on the family side, the PLUS loan really encourages family-level debt, which is so unfortunate, right? Because these PLUS loans are what they sound like. They're in addition to uh, the basic direct loan that you take out. Once you've exhausted the amount uh, that you can take out, you can then borrow through the federal PLUS loan program. So eliminating those programs, uh, those loan options out of the gate would really help to put some downward pressure on prices. And 
you know, the, the question always becomes, well, you know, what if a, a student wants to, to attend grad school and plus loans don't exist and they have trouble getting a, a loan with a low interest rate in the private loan market? Well, if you're attending grad school to become a doctor or a lawyer or pursue some sort of, you know, professional uh, career, you will have no problem getting a loan in a private market with a, a good interest rate. Um, if you're not, though, sorry, but if you're attending graduate school to, I don't know, pursue a degree in um, feminist sociology, fill in the blank, uh, you may have a hard time getting a competitive interest rate in the private market, but that's okay, right? I mean, that reflects the risk inherent in providing the loan. And we sure, certainly shouldn't ask taxpayers then um, to, to pick up that cost, which is what the PLUS loan program does. So long story short, <laughs> getting rid of these heavily subsidized federal student loans would be a really good step in the right direction to start to actually drive down prices and make colleges uh, more, more price sensitive in particular. So I definitely consider my incessant skepticism both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in journalism for sure. But as I've watched all of these my pillow ads over the years, I have just been plagued by the question, are these as good as the commercials say they are? I've always wondered this. And when the fine folks over at MyPillow were kind enough to send me some of their products, I was really pleasantly surprised. These things are great. And right now they're having a BOGO extravaganza. So you can get buy one, get one free price on the MyPillow bed sheets as low as $59.98, the Elegance MyPillows as low as $49.98, and that six-piece towel sets. Those are my favorite. Those are included in the BOGO extravaganza. Also, the Roll and Go Anywhere MyPillows for $29.98 and so much more. Those six-piece towel sets are made with cotton grown here in the United States. Other towels feel good but don't absorb, or they absorb but they don't feel good. Every MyPillow towel is made from proprietary technology that makes them highly absorbent and soft to the touch. I can confirm that. It's absolutely true. Like I said, these are my favorites. They have no lotion-y feel either. Every set comes with two bath towels, two hand towels, and two washcloths. So you got everything you need. They're available in a variety of colors and sizes, and they are machine washable and come with a 60-day money-back guarantee and a one-year limited warranty. Those roll-and-go-anywhere MyPillows, you can use them on your couch, your recliner, or in your car. They're versatile enough to take on vacation or really anywhere you go. They're also available in multiple colors and patterns and machine washable and dryable for all you parents. That's the most important part. They come with a 10-year warranty and a 60-day money-back guarantee as well. So as you can see, it's a buy one, get one extravaganza over at mypillow.com slash federalist. Bed sheets and my pillows are just the tip of the iceberg. Find the full list of BOGO offers by visiting mypillow.com slash federalist or call 800 794 8429. Stock up with buy one, get one free savings today and get Mike's book free with any purchase. MyPillow.com slash Federalist or call 800-794-8429. MyPillow.com slash Federalist. And would hopefully push people into uh, different paths as well that you know, people, there's so many people who go to college and you'll know this way better than I do, but there's so many people who, who go to college that um, end up, you know, sincerely working at Starbucks and, and never right. holding a job that requires a, a degree. Um, what is that? Do you know what that breakdown actually looks like of the amount of people who, you know, may have been better served by a vocational education or an apprenticeship or something like that? It's a good question. I don't know the numbers off the top of my head, um, but there are a lot of surveys out there of 
businesses uh, of industry that show very clearly that uh, college graduates are not prepared to enter the workforce. Um, so that that's out there. Um, yeah. But, you know, look, I, uh, your point is well taken. Um, and, you know, I think one other issue is if we step back, right? I mean, we hear this argument for loan forgiveness because we hear the left in particular say that this debt is just untenable. Well, if you are graduating college with a degree and you are actually entering the workforce, preferably in the field that was your chosen field of study, student loan repayments are generally manageable for most people, right? And yes, in the aggregate across the country, student loan debt is high, right? We, we all know the number, it's 1.7 trillion, uh, about 1.3 trillion of that is what the, the federal taxpayer holds or those federal student loans. Um, so cumulatively, yes, outstanding student loan debt is high, but at the individual level, it is those monthly payments are modest. Um, if you look at median student loan payments, they are about $222 per month. So for most graduates, that's probably a manageable repayment amount. And if it's not, there already exists a lot of different loan options that cap the amount income-driven repayment uh, at the amount uh, based on your income that you have to repay monthly. So there's already that sort of uh, safety net, if you will, out there for those borrowers. So this is a good segue then into what I think is one of the most crucial questions. And it's 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 hard to I mean, it's not hard, but you really do have to split hairs here, because on the one hand, um, students have had agency and, you know, the, all of us have had agency. We have made these decisions to take out these loans. You're you're an adult when you're 18 years old um, and you, you make that decision on your own. On the other hand, the political establishment has carried on for years as though the college education is the ticket to the middle class. Thus, you if you want to live out the American dream, you must go into, you know, whatever, even if you go to a state school um, and you need to take out loans, you must go into $20,000 of, of debt or upwards of that. Um, if you really believe that you, know, you should go to a liberal arts school, get the best possible education um, and, you know, do that whole thing um, and, and end up again, you know, maybe immediately working at Starbucks and then going elsewhere. And that's actually been the case for a whole lot of people in the country. Uh, and what have the effects of these insane prices uh, that Big Ed has just kept jacking up and jacking up and jacking up. What is the effect that we have seen, especially on millennials? Um, the, a lot of Gen X experienced this as well um, as they sort of try to start their lives um, after college, but they're saddled with kind of ridiculous, not kind of, like completely ridiculous um, amounts of money that you can understand why you know, they believed it was sort of prudent to borrow. Yeah. So look, I mean, honestly, again, I would go back to just the, the data, right? The numbers around how much uh, debt graduates actually leave with. So if we look at average student loan debt among borrowers, it's about $32,000 when they finish school. But that's average, right? If you look at the median, it's closer to 17000 And that's an important distinction because the average is driven up by the folks who are borrowing to attend grad school. And if you look at it, it's actually data from the Urban Institute, but they found that 17% of borrowers account for more than half of outstanding student loan debt. And that's largely those, those attorneys, those doctors and lawyers, um, who, again, statistically speaking, are likely to benefit considerably from their degrees, right? We know on average that they earn 61% more than someone with a bachelor's degree over the course of, of their working lifetime. 
Um, but I, I agree with you. And I think it's a, an important point that societally, right, we have basically sold students this bill of goods that says there is no way that you can climb the ladder of upward economic mobility unless you attend a traditional four-year brick-and-mortar college. And it's unfortunate that that narrative has come to, to dominate because that's not the case. Um, but it is certainly incumbent upon parents, counselors, employers, <laughs> uh, everybody, uh, Congress, <laughs> policymakers, everybody to move away from that narrative and say that you can be incredibly successful and, by the way, leave and enter a job without uh, all of the student loan debt by pursuing apprenticeships or just doing things outside of that traditional four-year model, um, that there are multiple ways in America to climb that ladder of upward, upward economic mobility. But you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the narrative that, that gets reiterated to students ad nauseum is that your only path to success is through a brick-and-mortar college. And, and that's really unfortunate because there are so many other options that could be a better fit for so many students who did attend college um, who either weren't prepared or it just wasn't what they uh, wanted to do. So, you know, and that, that really is, I think, the, the worst place you can be in, right, is that you end up going to college when maybe you would have been better suited going to an apprenticeship or, or doing something else, and then you don't end up graduating with that bachelor's degree, but you've accrued a lot of debt along the way. That's the, fir the worst position that you can be in. So, you know, we've really got to, uh, I think, just as a, a general matter, have more employers that are more open to uh, flexible learning options uh, to apprenticeships to not just sort of looking at that bachelor's degree as a proxy for employability because in fact often it's not a very good proxy. Right. No, not at all. Um, I remember growing up in sort of halfway between Milwaukee and Madison, um, and my public school district was so hyper-focused on college as the sort of, uh, that was the measurement of their success. Their success at educating us was if we went to college. Um, mm -hmm. And is sort of how our system has really been set up is to um, incentivize that. And the, the byproduct of that incentive is it, it's been held up as the norm and as the ideal and as the benchmark, in fact. And if you don't meet the benchmark, there's sort of something academically wrong with you. And that's at least the message that I think has been very easy for students to get from the way the system has been built for the last several decades. Yeah, and you're right. And, and that's the case, right? Because, you know, everybody, everybody's going to get a, a bachelor's degree, then it does look like, well, what's wrong with the person who didn't pursue that route? And it's just, it's really unfortunate. Yeah, and that is one final question I have for you. It's a huge question, of course. Um, but with COVID, I noticed a lot of students. Um, I work with a lot of college students. It, it seems like uh, there there was some um, mounting, I guess, disinterest in the traditional college path. Uh, people have actually seems like in higher numbers, been thinking about uh, what it would look like to just go into their industry, uh, to, to skip the, the tens of thousands of dollars of loans, to skip the four years on a campus and just go into their industry um, or, you know, think about where they where life might take them, something like that. But what are the solutions that you think are most doable and important um, with the exception of what you've already talked about, which is you know eliminating the student loan program, um, what can states do with apprenticeship programs? Um, what can you know the, the if the federal government can do anything? What would that look like uh, going forward? 
Well, I think the most important thing, short of the the loan elimination that I mentioned, or at least caps to make those loans more modest, um, that the the second most important thing is accreditation reform. And it's wonky, <laughs> admittedly, <laughs> in a nutshell, uh, decoupling federal financing from accreditation. So right now, in order to receive a student loan or a grant, you have to attend an accredited college, but accreditation is conferred by a board, Nasiki, uh, that is effectively, it's technically not federal, but it's appointed uh, by uh, members of the federal federal government, various branches to oversee this board. And so accreditation is sort of a de facto federal enterprise. And uh, that has really limited innovation in the space. And so one thing that Congress could do that would make a huge difference would be to decouple those functions, to no longer have Washington be the gatekeeper for uh, quality assurance for universities, the gatekeeper for access to student loans and grants, and to allow states to set up their own uh, systems of quality assurance for higher education and at the same time allow students to take their student loans and grants to individual courses and courses of study. And that would provide much more flexibility. So you could be a student who wants to pursue medicine. You could take some courses uh, at a university in your state, but then you could do some apprenticing, apprenticeship options through, say, the Mayo Clinic. Um, you could have uh, Boeing set up crediting um, oversight for aeronautical engineering courses if you wanted to go that route. You could have industry much more involved in this question of quality assurance for uh, coursework, and it would really enable students to take the precise courses that they need to enter the job that they want to pursue without having to add on all of these fluff courses <laughs> along the way. So, because look, right now we say to a student, no matter what you want to do, be it engineering or medicine or fashion design or foreign language, right, whatever it is you want to pursue, we tell them it's going to take four years, no matter what. And you have to take a host of these uh, sort of entry level courses that may have nothing to do with what you want to pursue along the way. And of course, for the majority of students, unfortunately, now they're not graduating within four years, it's five or even six years, which does lead to more debt, it does lead to more borrowing as well. So we can break up that whole system, allow for much more innovation, much more access to both apprenticeship programs and courses that align with what employers are looking for if we remove that gatekeeping function from the federal government and decouple accreditation from federal financing of higher ed. Sounds good to me. Uh, <laughs> when, I, when I sort of think about this, the cultural benefits um, that seem you know, imminent if this were, if, if sort of the system were to be uh, broken up, I mean, it is amazing that you wouldn't have to filter, um, you know, every person through this four-year course in hating America, this four-year right. course, <laughs> like all of these, uh, and in stunting people's lives is stunting. I mean, when you're 18 years old, um, you're you're young, but you're also you know an adult, and right. so many people, um, this. The four-year track um, means that that's four years. You know, nobody wants to get married in college. Um, although it's some of these sort of southern culturally conservative schools, <laughs> they do. Uh, but nobody wants to get married in college, so they. I, I waited until after college. So really, 
<laughs> that's awesome. Uh, but it's true. Like it's contributed to this total arrested development, yeah. uh, this sense of arrested development. And then you're, you get out of college with, you know, let's say $30,000 of student loan debt. So you're also delaying um, the wedding that you want to have, which people stop paying so much money for weddings. Um, and secondly, uh, you're delaying homeownership and uh, parenthood in so many cases. So Lindsay, everything that you've outlined here uh, seems like it would help the country in so many ways, uh, not purely at improving our education system. Yeah. And I would add just something that you mentioned a second ago about, you know, just sort of it's it's uh, financing the left, right? I mean, these, these courses, right, that are effectively, I don't know, anti-American, maybe it might be a little strong, but in a lot of places, that's not that far off from the truth. I mean, we can look at this proliferation of DEI officials in higher education. My colleague, Jay Green, just put out a big study on this, that um, there are just a, a tremendous amount of these bureaucrats, um, commissariat, I think he calls them, uh, in his paper. But look at the University of Michigan. It has something like 164 DEI officials. Um, and all of that is being supported by taxpayer funding through these federal student loans and grants and direct funding uh, through to the universities from Washington. So, uh, yes, there are a lot of downstream effects, benefits that we would experience if we started to ratchet down uh, that tremendous taxpayer investment from Washington. Lindsay Burke, Director of the Center for Education Policy at the Heritage Foundation. Thank you so much for kindly bringing your expertise to Federalist Radio Hour today. Thank you for having me. Of course. Now, you've been listening to another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, Culture Editor here at the Federalist. We will be back soon with more. Until then, be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray. Oh!